Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Let's do it. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest returning, the first return guest on the Acquirers Podcast, Corey Hofstein, my very good friend. He's the co-founder and CIO of Newfound. Uh, provides both research and manages assets. We're going to be talking about his collaboration with uh, Gestalt, what's the firm name? Resolve and uh, Robust Equity Momentum Index. And we're going to talk about Corey's recent paper on value investing. Should I stay or should I growth now? I love a clash reference. We'll be talking to Corey right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquires Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? Toby, doing great. Thanks for having me on a second time. I, I feel privileged to be the first repeat. I, uh, I, I, I had Jake Taylor. He's he's now come on as a host on my Value After Hours show. So, uh, but you guys were the you guys were the very first uh, guinea pigs, unfortunately for you. So I did promise to get you back after I'd had almost a year of practice, and so we're. I think that I think we recorded February eight last year. So we're. Yeah, we're, I think I think we're going to hit like almost perfectly on the year here. I've gone I've gone about a week early, but I think it'll be live around about that date. Um, so. You've 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 created a new index, the Robust Equity Momentum Index. We're going to need to start because this is mostly a value podcast. We need to start from uh, first principles. Let's talk about what is momentum. So me- momentum is a really basic quantitative signal. Uh, at at its core, the idea of momentum is that securities or assets that have recently outperformed their peers will continue continue to outperform their peers run and those that have underperformed their peers are have a higher likelihood of continuing to underperform on, over the short run and obviously all the craftsmanship and nuances in how you measure that and build a portfolio around that idea um, but that is that is the core idea of the quantitative signal it's very much tied to behavioral concepts as to why or why not that works why such a simple concept can work um, but what you do see is from an efficacy perspective, it it's, can be applied across individual securities, across asset classes. It works in commodities, currencies, fixed income, equities, equity indices. Um, and so that gives you a lot of confidence that uh, this type of signal, despite being rather trivial to implement, uh, has a strong level of robustness to it. When I think of momentum, um, I, you've got a great post on your site, which I read before I met you. So it's, it's, it's bit, you've had it on that site for a few years now. It was 200 years of, of momentum. When I think of momentum, I think of Cliff Asness. I think he may have been one of the first to codify uh, and to codify momentum in relation to equities. And he, my recollection of what he had done was he was looking at the, it's a 12-month momentum look back and then you, you don't examine the, the most recent month. What, what's the what's the rationale for that? How does that how does that work? Yeah. So momentum. What's really interesting. The academic studies for momentum actually go way way back. I think the earliest uh, was in the 1920s. 
there were later studies in the 1960s, but really I think what you saw was the growth of efficient market theory really pushed momentum aside. I think momentum got very much caught up in this idea of technical analysis, which was um, really poo-pooed on, especially by people who were doing more fundamental analysis, taking on that, that Graham and Dodd type mentality. Uh, and so what you saw was a lot of the more price-based quantitative signals really didn't get a lot of attention until the early 90s. So really the seminal paper here was done by Jagadish and Tipman, I believe it was 1992, might have been 1994. Um, and they did look at a variety of different look back periods. So one of the ones that came out of the paper as being very strong was this idea of 12 minus one. So you're going to look at the prior 12 months, skipping the most recent one. And the reason that they do that and, and do it very particularly in the space of individual security selection is because what they tended to see was in the sh very short run, securities actually exhibit mean reversion. So if you saw a very, very strong performance in the most recent month, it actually had a higher likelihood of reverting over the short term. So by focusing really on that 12 minus one, you were looking for more persistent pass momentum, ignoring the most recent returns that had a higher likelihood of mean reverting and therefore towards those securities that had a higher likelihood of persisting in that performance. So one of the things I had, I've had Adam uh, Butler on the show, who's just at Resolve and, and you've been on previously as well, talking a little bit about momentum. Um, one of the things that I learned from both of you guys is um, to, to, to sort of be a little bit less strict about those look-ahead periods or to be less um, governed by what the back test says specifically and, and sort of to, to, to take more of an ensemble approach to that. So uh, what, what, what is the problem really that you're trying to solve with the, the robust equity momentum index? Yeah, so I, th I think if we take a step back, for us at Newfound, we're very, very much focused on active risk management. Our view is that for investors who are trying to achieve an outcome in their financial plan, consistency in returns is really important. And so what you tend to see for most investors, the way they try to de-risk their portfolio over time is by introducing more fixed income. That's been the plan for the last 30 years, and it's worked very well. The potential problem that we see today is that as you add more fixed income into your portfolio, you're not really introducing more diversification. You're just really explicitly de-risking. And so if you move from a more equity dominant portfolio to a more fixed income based portfolio, at this point where interest rates are, you're moving into an asset class that has a very, very low forecasted real return. And so as you get towards retirement and you're using fixed income to try to manage risk, the risk you're introducing is that you might actually live longer than expected. And you may therefore outgrow your portfolio with that, these that, really... I hope so. That's, that'd be a great risk. Oh, it's a great risk until you're out of money. And then it's a real big problem at the end of life. What we're really pounding the table about is saying the answer for us is diversification that risk all risk management should be centered around diversification we just really think you need to rethink diversification more holistically it's not just what are we investing in but it's how are we making those investment decisions and even when are we making those investment decisions 
So to go to the how, there's absolutely nothing wrong with strategic asset allocation. It works really, really well in certain market environments. But if you're using, let's say, U.S. Treasuries as your primary means of managing risk in your portfolio, a rising interest rate environment can be a difficult environment for you to do well in. Or a prolonged low interest rate environment can mean that you miss out on a tremendous amount of portfolio growth opportunity. And so what we're ultimately trying to do is say, um, not that tactical, which is an approach that, that we focus on heavily is better, not that all alternatives are better, not that buying puts as a means of managing risk is necessarily better, but they all just happen to work, be effective and, and ineffective in different market environments, and that we should really think about diversifying the way in which we manage risk, diversify our diversifiers, in other words. And so what we wanted to bring to market and doing this with Resolve, which I think is a really unique collaboration uh, as far as products in the market go. But with this index, what we wanted to say was, well, how can we apply a lot of these momentum and trend following ideas to equity market exposure to help investors potentially manage those big left tail risks that can be associated with equities, especially where equities tend to be the primary source of risk in most investor portfolios. So, uh, that's uh, you, you sort of uh, you stepped ahead a little bit there. So, what I, I, it's funny, I think about you and uh, a resolve as philosophically aligned, and I've learned a great deal from both of you guys. So, how did the collaboration come about and, and wh why work together? So, Newfound Research, my firm, we've been helping power and running our own tactical strategies going back to 2008. So, we were originally a research firm outsourcing the actual asset management to other asset managers. Around 2013, we started offering our own separately managed accounts, mutual funds in 2014. Um, and so this, this idea of tactical equity, trend following momentum has been near and dear to our hearts, something we have practiced and researched for, for a very long time now. Uh, the team up at Resolve came upon a lot of the same conclusions completely independently. And both of us have been large proponents of publishing research, found each other through the research, um, and I think ultimately formed a mutual respect for the research, learned from each other, uh, helped push each other in a very strong way. And I, I think that's somewhat unique in what's historically a competitive market environment to have that collaboration. This really came about because what we saw post-2008 was a large number of people who really did want to adopt this tactical mentality, really focus on proactive risk management. And uh, our friend Meb Faber, I think was a large influence there with, with the paper he wrote showing that you could just use something like a simple 10 month moving average and just look at it at the end of every month. A gentleman named Gary Antonacci wrote a very influential paper and wrote a book. Um, uh, I think, I believe he just used 12 month returns and, and evaluated every month. And what Adam and I, so Adam, the CIO at, at Resolve, and I really were, were hitting our hands on the table about saying, yes, we believe these styles work, but if you're only going to look with one signal making a big all-in, all-out decision and only look at one point in the month, you're taking on a tremendous amount of specification risk. So we think the style works, but the way you're specifically implementing the style uh, can can make it so that you actually underachieve what what you're trying to accomplish and so there is this big debate about simplicity versus complexity um, More complexity obviously can potentially make something more fragile But we argued if you get too simple it becomes too fragile 
And I think what ultimately ended up happening was Q4 2018 was a big wake up call for a lot of people who were implementing these very simple do it yourself approaches where they saw that for some of these signals, they rode the market all the way down to December 31st, 2018. The signal turned off and then they missed all of January and some of them even February. And so it put them well behind what they were trying to accomplish. And I think that was ultimately an eye opener. They had to experience it and say, okay, Corey, okay, Adam, I understand what you're saying that maybe we don't just want to use one signal and evaluate once a month. Maybe we want to all these different approaches to measuring trend and momentum together. Use this ensemble measure more frequently, make smaller tweaks, act more like a dimmer switch than a light switch. Um, and so there, there was a lot of demand that we got from people saying, but that's too much work for me to do. Can you, can you put this into a strategy for us? And so resolve received that, the, the inbound requests, I received the inbound requests. We ultimately said, you know, does it make sense for us to come to market with competitive products or does it make sense for us to collaborate, share some ideas and help support uh, the index together. And, and ultimately we chose the latter because we thought it was going to be a more powerful solution. So what does the index actually do? How do you, how are, dis, how, how are the decisions made? How is it implemented? The index starts with a really simple decision tree. So we're going to start at the very beginning by asking a very simple question. Do global equities look like they have a positive trend or a negative trend? And I'm very generic with that question right now. I'm not going to talk about how we implement it. If it has a positive trend, that means we want to be invested in the equity market. And so then what we're going to do is we're going to look at three regions. The three regions are going to be U.S. equities, foreign developed, and emerging markets. And we're going to look at their momentum and choose to invest in the region with the strongest momentum. Again, for a moment, just being very generic about how we ask that question. If we see a negative trend, on the other hand, in global equity markets, well, then we want to divest and move to a position of safety. And so what we're going to then do is look at short-term U.S. Treasuries and intermediate-term U.S. Treasuries and choose to invest in the one that has the strongest relative strength or momentum. Now, if we follow that really simple decision tree through the path, we'd actually end up with just one recommendation, right? So right now, U.S. equities look like they're in a positive trend. Uh, uh, sorry, global equities look like they're in a positive trend. U.S. equities have the greatest relative strength. The decision tree would be would say be all in on U.S. equities. But I was very generic in how I asked those questions. When it actually comes to implementing those with a model, how you measure momentum, how you measure trends in general can actually lead to different outcomes. So the real sort of fundamental problem that you face when trying to implement this is, well, let's say, Toby, you, you have the decision tree and you say you're going to implement it using uh, 12 months of history. I'm going to look at the 12 month returns. And I say, well, I actually think nine months is the secret. We both think they look the same over the long run. Uh, we think that there's efficacy to the system, but I actually end up with different recommendations than you end up with. Well, that's sort of confusing because they're both in theory trying to tap into the same thing momentum and trend. It's just we ended up with different answers. And so the solution we came up with was to say, well, why make that choice at all? There are times where the 12 month might be right. There are times where a 200 day might be right. Um, there are times where 36 weeks might be right. So rather than making this very specific choice, why not 
create a decision forest where we plant all these trees, right? Each tree represents one very specific way of measuring trend and momentum, gives you one very specific answer as to what you should invest in. And then what we do is we look at the whole forest and we allocate in proportion to the number of votes received. So if U.S. equities get 50% of the votes, they would be 50% of the portfolio. And so the idea in doing so is to try to embrace process diversification, recognize that we think trend and momentum work as styles over the long run, but we don't know in the short run which particular implementation will work best. And so we want to diversify our, our risk as to how we're actually measuring those questions. So when you're implementing it, it's not through individual equities. You're looking at indices you're looking at the top level of is the S&P 500 for example is that in a in a trend or does it have momentum is that yep. right yep that's right so we are we are looking at this as more of an asset allocation decision and, and there's really a twofold reason one because again what we're really trying to do is from a major muscle movement perspective try to create a portfolio that can manage that risk of prolonged uh, and significant drawdowns in those equity markets. So the individual security selection there is less important than just being exposed or not exposed, sort of that beta exposure. Right. But from a philosophical perspective, there's actually, I think, a strong argument that that sort of cross-asset allocation uh, is is more ripe for opportunity than individual security selection that when you think of the way assets are managed worldwide especially in pensions and endowments they tend to come up with very strategic policy portfolios and they don't have a lot of active risk allocated to cross asset decisions so they'll say we want 30 percent of our assets in u.s equities and then they'll pick managers who go into u.s equities and try to make active decisions about what securities to pick but there's no one really out there meaningfully arbitraging cross-asset decisions. And so we think there's far more opportunity for differentiated performance in those cross-asset decisions than there is in the individual security selection itself, how especially, many, especially on the risk management side. How many signals are you using? Are you, are you, are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and the index methodology is fully documented. So anyone who wants a deep dive on the index methodology, they can find that on the index web page. But, but we really use more primary signals in terms of measuring trend and momentum. But then we have a variety of what we call different look back periods, everything from very, very short term, one, two month type periods to longer term, 18 month. And then we also vary what we call the sampling frequency. So are we looking at a 200 day moving average versus a 40 week moving average versus a 10 month moving average? They're all kind of the same span, but depending again on which data points are included, you can actually come up with different answers. So the grand total is actually something close to 30,000 individual <laughs> trees being planted, which, which sounds like an overwhelming number, uh, but the reality is the benefit of being a quant is that there's no more marginal effort in doing the 30,000th versus the 29,999th. And it, and it may have very, very, very little impact in terms of you think of the mar marginal benefit that diversity. Very little including it either. It's just more computational power. So we might as well include it. Uh, how should somebody implement the, uh, the index in the portfolio? 
So this is where I think a lot of people have gotten into trouble over the last decade. So after 2008, we witnessed a huge uptick in, in the demand for these types of strategies. And a lot of people use them to replace equity exposure. And I think then you get a 10-year bull market and people get frustrated because a strategy like this really is not necessarily going to outperform in a bull market environment. You would hopefully expect 70 to 80% of the up capture and then maybe try to only get 40 to 50% of the down capture in those more prolonged bear markets. What we think is a far more effective way of implementing this type of strategy is truly thinking about it as a complement to a strategic asset allocation. So we benchmark it to a 60-40, which we think is sort of the alternative way in which people try to manage risk. And we think that that benchmark should not only inform uh, the long-term risk and return profile of the strategy, but we think it should also inform where assets should be funded from. And I don't think people think about that a lot from an from a benchmarking perspective, but I think it's a really important um, aspect of benchmarking. And so what does that mean? Well, if I want to have a 10% slice of my portfolio be tactical, and I'm benchmarking that tactical portfolio to 60-40, then I should actually sell 6% of my global equities and 4% of my fixed income to allocate to a strategy like this. And the reason why that can work is because then now the strategy acts as sort of a tactical pivot in the portfolio that in a strong bull market, instead of being a 60-40, that, that tactical pivot has the opportunity to tilt you more towards like a 70-30. And then if it goes the other way where markets start to sell off, instead of being a static 60-40, that tactical pivot can now de-risk the portfolio to something like a 50-50. Um, and I think, again, the benefit there is you've also constrained how tactical you're going to be. So, again, our view here is not that tactical is better than strategic. It's that they do well in different market environments, and we want to think about ways to, of integrating them for a client so that they can create more consistent outcomes and their financial plan has a higher probability of being achieved. Yeah, that's really clever. Uh, how do folks uh, get? How, how do folks learn more about that if they're interested in it? Yeah, so they can go to our website, thinknewfound.com. We have a very specific uh, index page for this uh, index. So the index ticker is actually NROMOT for, and we'll I'll send a link to you, and you can hopefully share under I'll, under I'll the, stick uh, in the, I'll stick the podcast the page. Notes. Make it a little easier for people. And there's all sorts of resources, webinars. Uh, I'll have this podcast up there, of course. Um, index methodology, back-tested fact sheets, everything you could hopefully need to in an evaluation of, of the index and the strategy. That sounds great. All right, man, you got to help out long-suffering value guys. I'm looking for any kind of uh, cool drink of water in a, in a long desert of uh, underperformance for value. There are a couple of great things on your website that I love checking out pretty regularly. I always look at the equity style dashboard. You've got a really great... Um, representation of what has what what value has done what size has done what momentum has done what people are actually investing in to implement those looking back over one year and three years i think it's a i think it's a fantastic resource and i go there very regularly i also love your blog and so anytime you mention value because i always think of you as more of you're agnostic to uh to any of the styles so i want to see what are the guys who are agnostic think about uh this thing that I'm a jihadi in. So I loved your paper, Should I Stay or Should I Growth Now? Do you want to just give us a little, um, what, what was the paper about? Well, I should start by saying I actually came up with the paper title 
before I, I came up with the paper. <laughs> Sometimes and that happens. Like, right. Now I'm gonna write. It just hit me in the sh- hit me in the shower, and I was like, well, now I now I have to write a paper about this. Um, you know, I so we are we are not um, value managers, uh, but that doesn't mean that value doesn't influence our process. And so we actually, in some of our tactical mandates, we take a, a sector based approach to accessing the equity markets. Um, very specifically, an equal sector weight approach tends to serve as our strategic basis. And when you look over the last three, five, ten years, um, you've seen that basic equal sector weight approach has tracked the value premium very closely. Did very well 2000 through 2007, 2008. Did decently up till about 2011, 2013. And then basically has been uh, a drag on per- portfolio performance ever since and very steep since 2018. So tracking value very closely. So it is one of these interesting things that while we don't pick value securities, when you look at the market one way, you can actually be influenced by these other factors, what I consider to be these unintended bets. And so for us, we wanted to take a look at saying, well, if we know that value is a factor that we're hitting unintentionally, value and size to a certain degree, um, when is this pain gonna end? Right. We, we continue to report that this has been a drag on performance year after year after year. At a certain point after hitting your head against the wall that many times, you have to ask, like, should we just do it differently? Um, and so ultimately what the paper wanted to look at was saying, how can we try to measure the cheapness of value? Is value out of favor for a good reason or do we think it's been oversold? Um, there are a number of papers that have been written recently. So, so QMA wrote one. Research Affiliates wrote a great one. Rob Arnott wrote a great one. Excuse me, uh, Cliff Asnes wrote a great one. Rob wrote the Research Affiliates one. Um, all written in the 2018-2019 period. And for me, it was trust but verify. Uh, I wanted to take a look myself. And very specifically, what I wanted to look at was separating a little bit the difference between the academic implementation of a factor right. and the way an investor might look at a factor. So you you mentioned we have this style dashboard. One of the things that's really important to me is saying it's not fair to me as a quant to say, hey, by the way, value's out of favor. Um, this is the way I implement it. It's this long, long short academic portfolio. And by the way, the way you're going to access it through ETFs looks nothing like that. So right. my research isn't even relevant to the way you're going to buy this factor. So what I wanted to do was try to to replicate some of those ETF methodologies, what I would consider to be version one and version two methodologies, and we can talk about that, and just simply ask, is value cheap? Does it look cheap historically? Is it been oversold relative to both the market and growth portfolios? And the idea being, if it does look historically cheap, that um, there might be strong tailwinds that we can expect going forward as we would get a, a reversion to fair valuation. When you say oversold, you're not using that in the in the technical sense of I don't, I don't I don't actually know how that's calculated, but that's one of the overbought, oversold, like an RSI indicator or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, relatively oversold, right? So if we think that prices are set at the margin by demand from investors, that if investors are issuing value stocks for growth stocks. They're going to relatively trade those down, you know, instead of buying value stocks they're buying growth stocks, which is going to increase the price of growth stocks uh, and uh, disfavor value stocks. So it's really more of a, a relative spread. And then really what we're trying to look for there is how how does the price of buying that basket compare to the fundamentals you get? 
and how is that tracked over time? I thought it was a, I thought it was a really interesting paper, and it's I yeah, and it did sort of uh, remind me a little bit of, or it looked a little bit at uh, Cliff Asnes's paper, which I thought was a particularly good one, where he said if we're talking about the value factor strictly, that's price to book. It hasn't worked for a really long period of time. Lots of folks have looked at the reasons why. There's various arguments that one is sort of that the world has moved away from a tangible asset to an intangible asset world. Another one is just that buybacks have uh, reduced the efficacy of the signal because companies that are very good tend to buy back a lot of stock and some of them have got negative book values, which, you know, McDonald's, as an example, is a very good company that has lots of free cash flow, buys back a lot of stock. So has there's there's less there's no money invested in it anymore because it's all been paid out, which is a great business and ultimately one you'd like to own, but it's misca- misclassified by price to book. But then Cliff moved on and he said, let's that's that's not the way that it's implemented for the most part. Most no value quant is using price to book or none who are still going anyway. The implementation right. is look at flow, look at a variety of different metrics. And he found that that improved performance pretty materially, but you still top out in 13, 14, 15, somewhere around there. And then they said his AQR's implementation without actually telling us exactly how they did that. But, you know, you can imagine that it's it's probably closer to what every other quant value guy is doing when they're looking at, they're looking at everything. They're looking at the health of the company, health of the balance sheet, strength of the cash flows, the valuation, various other things like that. So that's what I that's what yeah. I took from your paper too. That you were looking at, at what is a more realistic implementation of it, and and what, what, what is that is that a fair is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, I I think to your point, this is something we were chatting about before we started recording. You know, we can talk about value as a style, but the way you implement it again is so so meaningful to your conclusion. So, price to book, the just very generic academic definition, peaked out in two thousand seven. Most composite models that might do price to book and you know plus price to forward earnings and all, you know, enterprise value to sales might be included in there. You know, those get you to 2013, 2014. Um, when you start including other craftsmanship concepts, so you're gonna look at the quality of the balance sheet. You might look at um, cross industry signals instead of cross market signals. So you might be sector neutral or industry neutral has certainly helped, um, kept you more in technology, for example. Um, different sort of portfolio construction. I mean, I know some of the, some of the signals that someone like an AQR might even use would be looking at. Well, we're not just going to look cross industry. We're going to actually look at valuations of suppliers. You know, economically linked companies, not just right. what what the GICs tell us. Or they might have their own definitions. And you see that some of those craftsmanship things, using momentum, for example, to keep you from buying losers, deferring purchases. DFA right. implemented that uh, a couple of years ago. Those sorts of things kept a lot of value people, at least in the game, until late 2017, early 2018. And then since then, it's just been a loser for it seems everyone, which is really interesting because, again, it ties back to um, your considerations on your, your experience with value is very much tied to the, the specific choices you make of how you implement the concept. Um, and again, I, I should mention here, we're very much talking about systematic value. I know there's a lot of people who fight with you all online in particular <laughs> about what does value mean? We're talking about like quant systematic value here. And so what I wanted to look at was was really um, what I consider to be value 1.0 indices. And these are really indices that got popular. Um, well, they've been popular for a long time, but products started coming out 
around them in the early 2000s. That's a broad one, like a Russell or... or... Exactly. This would be like a Russell 1000 value. And, and I think what's really unique, well, not unique, what's, what's really interesting, at least, about these indices is that the way they're defined is they're defined to break up the universe between value and growth. So if I were just to say, what does value mean? Well, value mean I'm hopefully buying things that are um, priced cheaply versus their intrinsic value. But that's not actually the way that these Russell, S&P, MSCI indices are defined. What they say is, well, if we're going to break up the world between value and growth, so what they're going to do is they're going to rank stocks on both value and growth simultaneously. So growth, they're going to look at a, a number of metrics, price to value, uh, price to intrinsic value measures like book value or, you know, again, enterprise value to sale, something like that. And then they're also going to look at growth measures, revenue growth, earnings growth, internal growth rates, ROE, that sort of stuff. Um, and they're going to simultaneously rank and they're going to say value is the stuff that loads very heavily on the value metrics, but very poorly on growth metrics. All right. So think about what you're buying there in that in that index. You are buying stuff that is very cheap, but probably cheap for a good reason because it's not growing. And then you go to the other side of the scale, which is we're going to buy growth, which is growing very quickly, um, high on the growth metrics, but low on the value metrics, which is basically saying, yeah, we're buying stuff that's growing a lot, but it's super expensive. Which you would sort of say like, well, well, that just ever all sounds like fair value then, right? It's cheap but contracting, growing but expensive. It's all sort of fair value, um, but that's how that those original value indices worked. And so the question of, well, is that cheap? Is a very different question than a lot more of these smart beta products that have come out, more concentrated. Um, and again, I think they keep improving every year, um, where you're not just looking at. Uh, you know, simultaneously ranking, you're just asking on an absolute perspective, like, is this thing cheap? And if it's cheap, we're going to include it without any consideration, really, or maybe there is some consideration of quality and growth. Um, but it's not this simultaneously split. And so you end up with with subtly different answers to the question of is value cheap based on how you're going to implement value. And then the, uh, the implementation that that AQR takes, uh, which is a uh, probably using the broad the as as many signals as possible that are value related signals trying to drive it perhaps more the way that a value investor would do it in the sense that you know it's not enough for it to be cheap on a book value basis it needs to be generating free cash flows the cash flows need to be actually turning into cash piling up on the balance sheet being used to buy back stock there needs to be some other considerations of health and that that helps you perform at a it only helps up to a point. I, it's been a, I've seen this. Uh, there's been this sort of repeated, uh, you know, one thing from from uh, Rob Arnott, and I thought Rob Arnott's paper was very good. And you know, when I say it's very good, it agrees with me. It's basically my my definition of it. And uh, and Cliffs is in the same is in the same boat. Um, I guess the question that every value investor wants to know is what. What drives this? What drives the underperformance, and and when does it turn around, or what what do you look at to see? Am I just going insane here buying value stocks when I can just go and buy Tesla or or something else that seems to be growing at a very high rate, regardless of the valuation? Yeah, what's really what's really interesting to me is again a lot of that actually ties back to how you're constructing the portfolio. So those value 1.0 indices that I talked about tend to take very heavy sector bets. 
So you tend, even if you use a composite, so a lot of them will use a composite of different value scores. They tend to load very heavily on financials and load, uh, be very underweight technology. And so you can actually track the value premium over time by just looking at, you know, technology minus financials or financials minus technology. I think you had Lawrence Hamtel on the podcast a little while back. And I know this is an area that he has explored really in depth, right? But if you were to look at a more sector or industry neutral implementation of value, that would no longer be the case. Um, You wouldn't be having this big sector bet that's driving the premium. And so the question that I think what makes this sort of era, this particular point in time unique is it's, okay, I can accept that value underperformed technology for the last decade, and that's why value 1.0 indices have stopped working. But when you start looking at someone like an AQR or a QMA who tends to neutralize those industry and sector bets and look at cross-industry valuations, well, this now seems like a risk appetite situation. Because a lot of what the evidence shows is that these valuations, relative valuations between growth and value, are at historical highs. Not all-time highs, right? This is not 2000. But when you look at price to book, price to enterprise value to sales, price to earnings, uh, forward earnings especially, you see that the love for value has definitely dissipated. And that those relative ratios of those fundamental measures are at... um, you know, decade highs, um, you know, they're, they're not as high as the, some prior dislocations, but they certainly, um, are cheaper today, at, at least on a relative perspective than they were five, six, seven years ago. And, it, and it's accelerated in the last year. So I think there's certainly an argument that this is no longer just a sector issue, that this looks a lot more like a, um, risk appetite issue that investors have just said, we're, we're done with this. Um, and I think what's really interesting about that, in particular, I did the study, I not only looked at these relative ratios to say, well, how cheap is it versus growth? How cheap is it versus the market? But I wanted to look on an absolute basis and say, well, how much are we going to get paid to hold this trade? If I'm going to buy value, right, is, is there, an, assuming prices don't change, is there a good carry argument? So I tried to back out the shareholder yield expectations. And that's another area where you see shareholder yield for value has accelerated versus growth over the last couple of years. So I think on a relative basis, you can at least say um, the attractiveness of what you're going to get paid for making this trade is a lot higher today than it was five, six, seven years ago. One of the great points that Cliff makes in his is that while we might not be at 2000 type extremes yet, there really aren't any other analogs out there. So you're, you're either proceeding on to a 2000 extreme at this point or you know, we're, 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 we're turning around and it's becoming a more normal environment for value where there is some sort of premium for holding value stocks. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think the interesting thing about the market is the unexpected can always happen. So would we bet on another 2000 occurring? Well, it's... It's still close enough in the rearview mirror. I think people are aware of it and are, and are hyper aware of valuations. Um, but on the other hand, at a certain point, after a decade of growth just working, you can start to see the appetite for growth continuing. Um, and so I, I think there is an opportunity for this to potentially continue to extend. I think I think Cliff has always been very proactive in saying, 
tactical timing can work, but it's not necessarily an all in or all out decision. All right, sin a little. And so if you're going to start doing this trade, I think it can make sense to leg into it slowly. You can almost dollar cost average into it. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be an all in or all out decision, which is more of a market timing decision, right? You can say, hey, as value stays cheap, I'm going to, you know, if I've got a blend of growth and value, I'm going to tilt every month another percent or two towards value. And as long as it's staying cheap, I'm going to do that. And then if it reverts, great, you can take the trade off. So that way you're not getting into trouble putting it on today and it underperforms another three years. You can sort of build that position over time. And especially as it gets more extreme, you can keep building that position. So I think I think there's opportunities for a little bit of craftsmanship in the implementation of taking a little bit of a tactical bet if people feel like value is truly oversold at this point. That's a spooky thought, Corey. You're making me think that it's Halloween telling me that value is going to underperform for another three years. Anything's possible, my friend. <laughs> Uh, I I would have thought that, you know, I, value value was getting pretty stretched. I thought by, uh, you know, by May, June, July last year, and then I think eight twenty seven was the w- w- the various different metrics that I look at. That was about as wide as it got, and then it did start closing up. Value started outperforming a little bit over uh, over growth or glamour or however you want to describe it, until September nine, which was the best day for value since. 2000 basically and then the worst day for momentum since an equivalent date followed by september 10 which was a similar sort of uh not quite the same five or six sigma event Mm. it did seem to go it did seem and then it did seem to sort of outperform through the end of last year the last quarter and a bit of last year but then we've had this uh january it turns out we haven't seen the end of january yet but we're 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 close to it. I saw somebody on Twitter yesterday said this is the best month for momentum since uh, since the beginning of the millennium, and I, I you know it's good to see those momentum guys win one every now and again. <laughs> do you think that uh, do you think that um, when you see something like that are you are you does that mean the momentum trades back on that kind of uh, volatility towards momentum? You know, what's what's really interesting about the momentum trade is it is a complete chameleon trade, right? The turnover in a purely implemented momentum portfolio. So maybe not maybe not the the ETFs you might buy, but the true sort of quant active definition is going to be so high that momentum can look like all quality stocks one day, all low vol stocks, all, you know, could be defensive. It could go high beta. It could go plow into value. And so I think at least what's interesting to me is looking at sort of those changing correlations between what does momentum look like. You can actually look at the underlying holdings overlap, which is always telling. Um, but you can also look at sort of what is it tilting into. And so this idea of momentum being either implemented as a pure factor, trying to isolate it from all the other exposures it's have, or, or thinking about it as a chameleon factor, you know, it allows momentum to sort of potentially continue to persist. It's always interesting when things hit extremes. New extremes are particularly interesting. Um, but I'm always I'm always hesitant to, to ever fade anything. Again, I'll I'll defer to Cliff who any smart thought I've had, he's had 20, 20 years prior and vocalized it for a lot longer. I think he said it's it's always at the hundred and fiftieth percentile that you want to start taking action, which right. is sort of a quant joke because you never get right. to the hundred and stops at a hundred. But the point being you know, just because something makes a new extreme, things can always get more extreme. And, and so um, 
I think where things will get particularly interesting for value is when you start to see the momentum trade start to correlate with value. And so if you start to see value get some legs, then what could really create a tailwind behind not just multiple um, compression uh, and, and reversion, multiple reversion, and not just the tailwinds of higher shareholder yield from earning that trade, but getting momentum could really accelerate that and continue that trend a lot longer. And it, it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd never thought about that like that before. Do you, do you see what, what's momentum loading on now? Do you have any sense of that? So I'm not, I'm not sure what it's loading on positively. Over the last decade, what's been really interesting is the negative leg of momentum. So if we think of the, you know what you buy is the stuff that's been outperforming, what you avoid is the stuff that's underperforming, the negative leg has been really heavily correlated to high beta stocks, right. so risky stocks. And the argument there has basically been the market was so afraid of post-2000, so afraid post-2008, that anything that looks slightly risky, people were just getting rid of. And, you know, and then once it started to sell off, well, that just made it riskier and people would get out of it faster. So there's been this huge correlation on the negative side of it, that high beta and low momentum have been highly, highly correlated post 2008. On the positive side of the trade, you have seen it sort of oscillate. But more recently, at least in the last year, it's been heavily correlated with low vol. The overlap, what's right. interesting is the holdings overlap hasn't necessarily been there. But from an actual uh, performance perspective, looking at the residuals of, of those factors, they've, they've been pretty decently correlated. So, so Toby, because I run my own podcast, I'm gonna I'm gonna take over here and, and flip the script on you. But so let me ask you this, because I know you run a number of value portfolios, and I know you run some long short portfolios as well. As you're looking for opportunities and screening opportunities, how has that composition changed? I mean, have you noticed loadings from different factors sort of creeping into the value basket or, or creeping into sort of your short basket? Yeah, I tend to be I tend to be unconstrained, so I don't I don't I don't take the equal weight implementation just because I think that there there is some additional alpha in weighting towards sectors, but then you have the uh, you know there's there are no free lunches. The quid pro quo mm -hmm. for that is that it can extend the underperformance. But the things that I have noticed, so that that t on a sector basis, that tends I lean more heavily towards financials on the long side. And then the short side tends to be names that have, I would call it um, like calorie-less growth. You know, there's sort of, there's no, um, while the revenue line might be quite robust, it doesn't seem to, it doesn't seem to fall through it in, into the cash flows. It doesn't, you know, the, the balance sheet looks terrible. The cash flows are highly negative and it's not necessarily growth cash flow. It's, it's cash flow that it's just not, it's just not flowing through from the revenues rather than, you know, so I make mm. a distinction between a high growth company, a high growth company will grow at a negative cash flow because they're reinvesting, they've got financing cash flows, they've got reinvestment cash flows that are being, um, that are negative, that are running towards, uh, you know, to, to build the next asset that you're going to get the next bit of growth out of your investing in that, that's negative cash flow. I'm not looking at that sort of thing, you know, and I, I hate to bash Tesla all the time, but Tesla, I think, is, is something like the, the poster child for it where the top line does seem to be reasonably healthy. Um, I think there are some questions about how, uh, how some of that top line is being achieved, but it, you know, the, the, the revenue line, the growth is great, but the, 
the underlying um, the cash flows and the earnings. Uh, if anything, they become worse every time uh, more cars are sold, and at some stage, it has to become, you know, it it has to be something other than a metal bender to achieve that. It sort of right. looks more like a software as a service type business. What the what the um, the portfolio as a whole, though, it looks like that it's something like it's a little bit the reverse of your momentum observation in the sense that the value stuff tends to be higher beta at the moment, which is mm. unusual. And it's not something that I've seen a lot of before. It has tended to be lower beta stocks through most of my career, but for the last few years, they have been higher beta names and they certainly behave that way too. Once Once they're in the portfolio, they continue to exhibit those properties up and down. Although there's a lot more down than up at the moment, is it is it high beta in the, the security itself? I mean, is there a, you know sort of a high amount of volatility in the underlying fundamentals too? No, it's it, it tends to be um, well, it's a little bit of both. There are some cyclical names in there that do have some. It's not. You, you, I don't think you'd measure it necessarily as beta because it the cycle is longer. The cycle is not quarter to quarter. The cycle is two or three or four or five years and the question is can these companies continue to, to earn what seem to be very good earnings um, yeah. but no it's it's securities beta it's it's security prices beta so it's um, they just seem to be more volatile and some of them I don't think I don't really understand why they're so volatile relative to the underlying fundamentals because the fundamentals seem to be pretty consistent it's a it's more investor expectations about what every print every quarterly print sort of means for the business and it's it's a violent move up and down i don't i i don't really understand why i haven't i haven't um i in some in some senses i don't really want to try and figure it out because i don't i think sometimes that can be a little bit misleading you you decide on some answer for why something is behaving mm. the way that it is and then it's just not right and but you, you're continually clouded by by that thought I don't want to bash on Tesla because it's entirely possible that Tesla's something that I would roll out of and not really think about one way or the other. Well, Tesla's sort of an interesting one. Um, and it, it's fun to talk about. I've got no position in Tesla, no view on Tesla. But right, you can sort of look at stocks in a couple of ways. You can, you can say, hey, this is the present value of all future cash flows, right? And Tesla, I think people sort of look at in a very binary nature. This thing is a fraud that's going to zero, in which case the price of the security is zero. Or you've got something that's going to be world-changing. Um, not a lot of people are in the middle, right? And so when you have like two groups fighting, that should cause a lot of volatility. Um, then you've got this other idea of like a stock is is ultimately at the end of the day, the equity value of a company is, is a call option on the assets after right. the, the debt holders have been paid, right? right? Well, you would then say if assets have a high degree of volatility to them or the, or the forecast for assets, well, then you would expect that the option should have a high value. Right. Right. Because you're, you're floored at, okay, you can only lose a hundred percent, but you can make an infinite amount. So right. that call option gets more valuable. So if you say, Hey, Tesla has a lot of intrinsic volatility to the business, well, then the price of the security should go up, which is sort of an interesting way to think about it. And then the third, which I, I, I don't even I know people try to quantify this. I'd be curious if, you, if you've looked at this, but you start to look at the actual market impact of participants and things like short squeezes. Sure. Which we should say, hey, in an efficient market, none of this should really happen, but we know efficient markets require um, 
a set of assumptions that aren't realistic. I mean, you end up in scenarios where the shorts might be right, but they can be squeezed to death and you right. can see this balloon inflate way further than people can ultimately stay, stay on. And so it makes it difficult to arbitrage the price to the right point, right? Especially when you have such rabid disagreement um, and the short sellers are, I mean, do you have any idea what the, what the borrow is on Tesla recently? Do you know, it's come down because that price action, which has been so uh, so aggressively positive, has just meant that the, the short interest has come down commensurately. So it's actually pretty reasonable mm. at the moment. I think Tesla is a living example of Soros's theory of reflexivity. Absolutely. As a $200 stock, you know, it's and it's a really funny one too, because I don't know if you'll recall, Josh Brown last year said something like Tesla's a better short at, I think it was $299 rather than $399 roughly like I forget the exact numbers and I 100% agreed with him on the way down and it, and the reason is it got down to something like it got down to around $200 you know they they it is still a metal bender it does still need money to build cars and factories like for them to grow like their growth isn't costless it's not a software as a service business with that has marginal growth of virtually zero cost they have to build factories and factories are expensive so they have to find the money you do a big capital raising a $200 stock, you get diluted and you're in a little bit right. of trouble there. Now that it's at wherever it is now, I, I wouldn't want to guess because that'd be 10% behind where it is, six or $700 or something like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't, I haven't checked, but they blew through the, the 420 funding secured, right? Blew through it. Didn't yeah. like It went through 500. So I don't even know where it is today. It could be six or $700, but now you know it is actually a better long because they could they could do a very serious capital raise at this level, right? And well, and I, I was I used to give that as the this is the um, you know the 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 path not taken a different a different uh, future where instead of tweeting the funding secured at four twenty, Musk goes and says takes whatever the five billion dollars that seems to have been genuinely offered at some stage and just does a little capital raise at a sixty billion dollar valuation. That's an entirely different story. As it turns out, it doesn't matter because he's has well and truly blasted through that number. So yeah, well, the count, the counter argument to your point though is that yes, it dilutes the Tesla shareholders, but there may be people more willing to do a, a participate in a raise at two hundred. That's true. Than at the valuations today because they're getting a, a poor deal. So the dynamics of a market always make these things so difficult. But it's such a fascinating stock to watch just for the sheer fun of it's like watching a, a sporting event. It's like a, you remember the Volkswagen squeeze. It's sort of it's in that kind of uh, realm of it, I I don't know what's driving it now. It's it's sort of beyond any can. It's beyond my comprehension. I have no idea. So I think it's a short squeeze. It's one of those once they get some momentum, folks are just looking at the price trajectory and ignoring the fundamentals and saying this is something that does have very serious upward price momentum. And so you, maybe you buy this, and if you look ahead, periods only a month or so. That's probably mm. a good trade. I don't know. Yeah, and I'd be I'd be interested to see as it starts to raise market cap, lose market cap, what that does for index deletions, additions. Right. You know where it falls, what sort of capital ends up just getting placed into it because of that that situation. I mean, a perfect example was our friend Jake pointed out what was it Beyond or right. Impossible, whichever I think it was Beyond got included in a whole bunch of value portfolios. Right. Which clearly not a value stock, but just the way these things are, are systematically defined. And, and I know very few people go read the index documents, and I and I do go through them. 
but it's you know if you're missing certain metrics you get assigned the median a lot of times of the of, universe of your subsector industry sector uh, that's right and, yeah and so it made beyond look like it's the value, food. <laughs> it's value a... stock right it's interesting to think about how how there can be some systematic flows that occur for all the wrong reasons um and then once you get included in there and then there's all the you know the the bi-weekly deposits that go into retirement accounts that right. can just strategically buffer so it's it's it, to me there's some interesting structural effects that occur can occur especially with systematic strategies that may not be that may be well defined at a stylistic level but poorly defined at a very specific security level right exactly i couldn't agree more at that execution level is and that's one of the things that i've learned particularly from you and from uh the resolve guys is that there there's a there's a massive difference between the explanation of the even very broadly value or momentum or something like that and then at the the implementation level is such a vast difference between the performance even your paper on timing luck i think was excellent right. where it, it's something that if you do if you do enough back tests it's something that you see but it's something that i'd never really focused on before until you wrote that paper or until we discussed it and it's just the the difference between so if you if you rebalance and you capture that march 2009 low if you don't rebalance around that data if you even wait i think it was the september rebalance might have been the yeah, worst august one. september yeah you just you missed that huge opportunity for that rebound, right? You just didn't reallocate back into equities from an asset allocation perspective or, you know, really changed. I know um, one of the original papers written by uh, Blitz and, and Van Fleet, uh, Finn Fleet and um, blanking on the, the third author's name from Rubico, they looked at the, the research affiliates methodology and the sector loadings that they saw for the different rebalance states were so different. I, I think it was right post 2009 that march rebalance they would have loaded heavily into financials and if they had waited another three months it was a totally different sector allocation right. which you know you start saying okay your your choice of really does especially in these markets that are where security valuations are changing in relative rank very very quickly um, you can end up with a totally different portfolio composition especially if you're building it systematically and you're not building in all these constraints or ways to address these problems that lead to totally divergent outcomes. I couldn't agree more. Uh, I think we're, we're coming up on time now, Corey. So uh, the f a few things that folks should go and listen. I love your, I love your blog. Uh, I think it's blog.newfound. What's your yeah, blog.thinknewfound.com or people can just search for the phrase flirting with models, <laughs> which I can't say without laughing. Did, uh, and you got some pushback from, uh, from iTunes when you tried to get the they saw they I, saw your picture and they said this guy's selling flirting with bottles. There's there's a lot of disappointed reviewers, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Quant podcast was not what they were expecting. <laughs> That's but yeah, great. The blog is there, and then you can also to the podcast searching the same same uh, phrase. And your Twitter account's excellent too. What's your what's your handle there? Thank you. Uh, Twitter account is C Hofstein. Seahofstein. And so if folks want to see the uh, robust equity momentum index, just one more time, that link, I'll put this all in the show notes. Yep. So they can go to thinknewfound.com slash N-R-R-O-M-O-T. And that'll take them right to the N-R-O-M-O-T index page. Perfect. That's great. Uh, Corey Hofstein, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on again, Toby. Really enjoyed chatting. Absolutely. <laughs> 